0: You are listening to Real Men Feel with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. You know, we are recording this in the midst of coronavirus lockdown, Uh, sports, concerts, amusement parks, film production, pretty much anything that has the potential to draw a crowd has ceased uh, really worldwide. Um, Certainly I'm most aware of what's happening here in the United States. But, um, you know, this this virus, it, it doesn't care about race, income, religion, social status, political party, none of that matters. And addiction is similar to that. You might have a, a stereotype in your mind about what an addict looks like and think you can you know can spot someone who's got a problem from far away or something, but uh, in, in my experience um living and with being with other humans, addiction can hit any person at any age, any profession, any location, and my guest today really knows that well. Um, my guest is speaker, coach, writer, substance abuse advocate, and the founder and CEO of hope Guides mr. Jacob Evans How you doing? Very good. Nice to see you, Jacob. Yeah, you too.
1: I'm glad that we can make this happen.
0: And uh, so let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. Like, how, how yeah. is coronavirus uh, affecting your life right now? Is it you're doing things differently? You're going to work? What's, what's yeah, happening? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, as, I'm glad that you asked that. We actually, um, Patricia and I, so Patricia, my wife, we, we made a joke today that, um, you know, if we ever wanted to get on the news, we could just dress up in hazmat suits and then drive down. Um, so we live super close to Newport Beach. We could drive down Pacific Coast Highway. Um with a big blow horn and then uh like um alcohol sprayers, and just tell people to go inside like they're they're spreading the virus um, and just be those people, but you know I, I make a joke about it, but the thing is is that it's it's it is really serious like the more that we're out and about and doing these things and creating this panic, like think about um baseball stadiums or or church even like they' mm. you can't go to church right now right, so even a situation like that. Um, and now we're all flocking to our local convenience stores and, and our and our grocery stores. We've literally just traded one venue for another venue, mm. and and so like the likelihood of us spreading it inside of the grocery stores is now way more likely. And so um, I have a friend. Uh, his name is Rudy. He's an awesome guy. Um, my mom's known him for years, and he works a lot with helping out with um, with legislation and things surrounding this um, particular arena my mom also she's a presidential appointee um she deals a lot with like natural disaster and catastrophe and so when i speak to them a lot of what they're saying is that like you know there's an over-aggrandization that's happening within the media in general but that doesn't change the fact that people are crazy people do (laughs) crazy things when they're scared and and so um and and we have to be able to respond to that as well. So there is the actual real threat of the virus, right? Which is that like more, more than likely a lot of people are going to get sick. Yeah. and Unfortunately, um, people are going to pass away from this. And even more unfortunate, we don't have the infrastructure to support those people that are going to get sick during this um, critical mass phase. Like it, it's just a reality. So there's that situation that we're dealing with. Now we can pound that with the panic that's, that's going on. And, and it leads me back to thinking, um, Patricia and I, again, we're talking on the way in today. Uh, cause we both work like literally side by side. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking on the way in and it was like, you know, she remembers doing the school project about every 15 seconds, somebody dies from a drunk driving accident. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what if we had the same response to substance abuse that we do towards this yeah. or, or, or to drunk driving or to any of these other things. And while we're drawing parallels to the two, um, you know, they talk about coronavirus being asymptomatic for a long time. You can carry on life, be a carrier, not even know it because everything seems normal. It's very, very, very similar to the beginning stages of addiction. Mm. It's like it, it, it can be very asymptomatic. And I know that in my own personal life, I am a testament to that. Like I was living with addiction without having all the typical avatar
0: traits that you would expect somebody to have. Mm. Right, because when, when we first talked, you you call yourself a former high achiever. <laughs> yeah. so, so I wonder if you might like, uh, yeah, t- tell me what high achiever means to you and then what a former high achiever, how do, what does that mean? Yeah,
1: so um, I mean, I, I believe that I still achieve. <laughs> it's funny the way that I call it, that, that I yeah. say it like that. It's not, it doesn't mean that like now I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to mediocrely achieve. <laughs> um, I think that what it means is that I, I put the emphasis on having these accomplishments, yeah. And so my, my focus was large. A lot of my self-worth was largely placed on what my accomplishments were. And so to me, I always identified, um, my life as attempting to achieve this, uh, personification of what I thought happiness looked like. Um, it meant I was working with this job or that I had like this promotion or that I was working out of this office or that I had this type of woman in my life. Like those things meant happiness. And I wanted to achieve those things. And fortunately, unfortunately, whatever you want to call it, um, I had the capability um, to be able to achieve those things. School came easily for me. Never had to study for a test. Was one of the youngest um, kids ever admitted into dental school at the age of 18 um, within like the last 50 years. So like that was like a big thing too. Um, Decided not to do that. I'm going to go to law school. And like that switch, like – chemistry, biochem, like that core focus switch was like nothing to me. It it was a completely different side of my brain that I was using. Um, and I, it still came just as easily. And that's not to say that like, I'm, I'm smarter than, or I'm more intelligent than other people. It's to say that like the way that the school system is designed really worked really well for my style of learning, memorization, um, parroting back information, uh, my, my that's how my brain works. So I, I, I was very fortunate that that's how the, school, the, that's how the schooling system tests your achievement because I, I was good at it. The other thing that I was doing is, is that I was a student body vice president. I was in um, National Mall United Nations. And I was doing these things and, and excelling in them, not because I was, like, passionate about it, but because it was, like, can I excel? And, like, I want to see if I can. And so, like, those were the things that I was doing. And when I say former high achiever, um, yes, I still achieve a lot of amazing things in my life, but, like, the things that I'm most proud of achieving are not, like, my my name on a piece of paper or, <laughs> or, what, or what have you. Um, the things that makes me excited now, the things that I'm excited about achieving is, like, um, when... You know, I get to take care of Patricia or, or whenever like I come home, like my daughter is like excited to, to see me, like being a dad, being a husband, um, helping people, hearing from mothers and fathers like you helped um, save my son. Like he only listens to you. Like those are the achievements that I'm most proud of now, not letters after my name or anything mm-hmm. along those lines.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you're growing up and chasing those those uh, older, more traditional achievements that mm-hmm. you thought would bring happiness did any of them feel good? Did, did they bring any happiness? Um, when I've come to realize
1: two things. One is that I thought the older that I got, the wiser I was becoming. But in reality, I was just getting older. Sometimes age only comes with age. It doesn't come with wisdom. Um, so it was weird. It was like I, I told myself, when this I'll be happy when. Fill in the blank. Um, I'll be happy when I graduate from high school or I'll be happy when um, I'm a varsity football player. So this is high school. I'll be happy when I get this, when I do that. Um, And I would achieve it every single time I would put, I know how to put hard work in. Um, That's one thing that my parents definitely impressed upon me. Again, it's not that I think I'm smarter or intelligent than anybody else. It's that like there were certain things in my life that facilitated me being able to achieve things a little bit less difficult than what other people may have had a time doing it i grew up as the only kid on my block who had chores except it wasn't just like take the trash out it was my dad would cut down a tree and he'd be like you see that tree over there i want you to carry all those logs over over there and stack it all up when i was done he'd be like yeah i actually don't like it there go stack it over there like that those were the sort of chores that that i grew up with just like character building going through frustration um like I knew what hard work looked like. Cause my dad was one of five, the only person to put himself through school. Um, I knew what hard work looked like through my mom because she was a woman coming up in the federal government. And like, you can already just try to wrap your mind around that as <laughs> very male centric environment. And like, and she did, she's a no BS woman. And like, so I know what a strong woman, hard work looked like, like resting on your morals. Then on top of that, I'm, I'm blessed with both of their intelligence. So like I'm, More intelligent than average because we've had IQ tests and stuff. So like I know that. So hard work mixed with like a little bit more intelligence resulted in me being able to achieve pretty much anything I wanted to achieve, so long as I put the work in. Mm. So I didn't know what it looked like to fail. And so every time I would accomplish these things, um, I would, I would get to a certain point and I'd be like yeah, I would be happy for a second, but then it would wear off. And it would be like, I would be right back to the same spot and be like, okay, now I need to chase the next achievement. And I realized that that's a very sick cycle. And so what happened for me was that like the wisdom kicked in when I started seeing the foresight. And I realized certain things, like when I was in dental school, um, or sorry, when I was accepted into dental school and I knew that that was what was going to happen. My dad wanted to hand me over this practice that he had built. And I realized if I do that, I literally become my dad. Hmm. And for any son, that's a really scary thought. Like, I I don't want to be my dad. So I was like, what's the exact opposite thing I can do? So that's why I made that decision. Then whenever I was going through and I was accomplishing all these things and nothing was filling me up, I realized that like happiness was just an emotion. And like, no matter how mad I ever got, no matter how sad I ever got, no matter how happy I ever was, it always left. Hmm. Which meant that like, there has to be a way that I can maintain this feeling longer, and there's something that I'm not doing that's leading me to feeling empty and hollow on the inside. And that's right around the time that I realized that like um, it's going to take a lot more substances to fill the knowledge that I have that this whole exists, um, because it, the more that I used, the less it was apparent to me. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. It, no, it does. So I wonder... Were you you did you begin using something before you were conscious that there was a hole, that you weren't feeling things? Or yeah, so mean? I mean
1: it, it depends on whose um realm of thought that you go into pertaining to how substance abuse manifests itself. Um, if you look at people like Gabriel Mate or people like Johan Hari, um, they believe that it exists because it's a one, it's personal, it's 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 built out of out of trauma. Um, trauma is relative, meaning that like my trauma is not your trauma. Your trauma is not my trauma. It's how our brain perceives traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing people like Johan Hari would suggest is that it's a lack of social connection. My generation and younger is doomed because we connect, um, we're arguably more connected, but it's pseudo connection Mm -hmm. and it's all, and it's all a fallacy. So, um, you mix those two things in, in tandem with somebody who, um, is, is aware of what's going on with themselves Um, and is able to have that foresight. I think that you get a recipe for disaster, like very, very, very quickly on. So you mix all that stuff together. And it's like, um, for somebody who, who sees like, you know, if I continue down this path of modern traditional success, I'm going to be very unhappy for the rest of my life. So like, what's the point? Screw it. And then like, that's more substance abuse, right? I I have to numb myself to the knowledge that I know how this is going to play out. Mm. Um, And then you now you're mixing substance abuse on top of already broken social conditions and connections. So now like I'm not talking to anybody about what's going on with me because I don't know how to communicate these things. So now it's just compounding even further. It's not normal or not not normal. It's not right in societal terms. It's taboo to go forward and be like, hey, have you ever thought that like, you know, maybe being a lawyer is like not a good thing and that you know, there's a reason why they're all taking their lives and they're all hooked on cocaine and cheating on their wives and on their third marriages. And like, that, that's a taboo because like, that's a certain thing that like you're supposed to try to accomplish. And then even further back, so now you, you pull even further back from it. And it's like, and I had this history of like growing up with um, really high achieving parents where the expectation and the standard was high achievement. It was like, if you came home with a 90% or a 95 or a B plus on your test, it was like, why didn't you get an A? I remember one time bringing home a 95% on a test and I was like, look at this. I was like, isn't this awesome? My dad was like, well, why'd you get, why, how did you leave 5% of the information behind? Like what's the 5% you left behind? It was never like, what's the 95% that we got right. It was what's the 5% that we got wrong and why did you get it wrong? Mm -hmm. Which is a great mentality for me to have, right? Is to look at like, don't always like rest on how awesome you're doing. Look at on ways to improve. Like, I know that that's what he was trying to do. But when you're like, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, you, it registers to you as like, why aren't I good enough? Yeah. So my brain registered that traumatic experience, that sort of experience around trauma. And there's other stuff too, that's irrelevant to this conversation, um, at least as far as like my, my particular circumstances. So my, at the heart of like what all is going on for me, when my substance abuse is really manifesting, I'm realizing more and more that if I continue down this path, I'm going to be extremely unhappy. Like it's just going to be more of the same. I'm going to hit hundred K a year. And I'm so it's still not going to be good enough. I'm going to be married and it's still not going to be good enough. I'm going to have, you know, 2.2 kids, white picket fence. And it's still not going to be good enough because I'm going to achieve all these things because I want to achieve them.
0: Yeah.
1: And then on the heart of it, it's like, and the more aware of this that I become, the more drugs I'm using and the more drugs that I'm using, the less socially connected I'm becoming. So now it's just this
0: sick cycle that continues to perpetuate itself over and over and over and over and over, and over again. So it, it, it sounds like to me in your description and just what I'm feeling from it that your substance abuse was kind of to cover up a lot of depression too. You're talking about a really horrible feeling future that you mm-hmm. saw for yourself.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, a pretty pretty grim uh, fate, it looks like I was going towards. Yeah. Um, and then even on, on top of that, it's like I never felt connected um, to my home state, to my home, I mean, not my home state. I never felt connected to my home um, city, right? like i'm I'm a proud West Virginia, but I never felt like um Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is where I grew up is the epicenter of um, it's the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. I never felt like this is home. my my whole plan the whole time was like, okay, how do I get out of here? Um, I can do it through music., uh, how do I get out of here? I can do it through school. and but I just I just never did. So, um, I know that like the other part of this is that, that comes along with the standard traditional successes, especially from where I grew up um, is that most people went to university, West Virginia university, came back to their hometowns, set up established um, practices or worked underneath as somebody else set up to achieve partner. And then they grew up in their same hometowns. Like, and that's kind of like the path that people were taking. And it's like, am I settling right now? Like for my life? And that was another thing that was hitting me too. And so I don't know if it was necessarily covering up deep-seated depression. Um, I would say I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't look at myself and self-diagnose. But what I would say is that there was definitely a, um, a long history of just genuine unsatisfaction in my life. Like things weren't giving me thrills that um should have. Hmm. right? And it's like, if you look at what my resume looked like on paper, people would have looked at that and been like, man, that's the all-American kid. Like he's done everything that you would want your son to do growing up. He played sports. He was in music. He was in jazz band, show choir. He went on to college. He was in a social fraternity. He was academic chair. He had a 4.0 GPA. He was on dean's list multiple times over. Um, every, every time since he um, went back to school, he got accepted into law school. He was this, he was that. He put him, he was working full time. Like on paper, it looked like I had everything together. And so like my point is, is that like even with all of that going on, the only thing that was growing, it wasn't this feeling of like contentment. It was this drug addiction. Cause I was like, the more that I accomplished, the more that I did what people expected out of a, a standard, typical American young man at that point. Um, I think that our, our our perception of things is changing right now in the social schema. But at that point, roughly 2012, um, it was, I, I wasn't happy. I was miserable. And I was blessed enough to have the foresight to look ahead and see like, if I continue down this path, one of three things is going to happen. I'm going to wind up being that attorney like that I don't want to be in my hometown doing those things to to contribute to this lifestyle. By those things, I mean like shady attorney practices that people make jokes about. Like I'm going to wind up being like that guy or um, I'm going to wind up like completely miserable and I'm going to be a statistic. I'm either going to wind up like, um, dead in jail, like (sighs) taking my own life, like, like any of these things could potentially happen to me if I continue down this path or, um, I can take, take a hand and like really try to like eliminate the one thing that I see. That's the only part that's growing that I think is a common variable, which is this substance abuse thing. Hmm. See, like when I was younger, roughly 14, 15 years old, um, I was introduced to weed as a communal thing. I, I never felt like I really fit in with people. And the minute that I started smoking weed with people, it was like those, it was an instantaneous friend group. And like, Everybody who smoked weed in my high school knew who else smoked weed and it was a little community. And I was one of the youngest at that point, like freshman year, going into sophomore year. Um, not a lot of people were doing it. So I was hanging out with a lot of older kids and um, we would all meet up after school and like it was, a, and it was an instantaneous friend group and I got introduced to it through, through music. And so the older that I got, um, I just identified weed and alcohol and all these things as like communal, normal. Mm. And then when I got into college, my same older friends, so I was roughly 18, 19, they were now going to things like festivals and stuff. They were going to like um, Coachella's and all these other things. And so like now they're experimenting with more party drugs. So when I'm 18, I'm experimenting with party drugs, cocaine, LSD, um, ecstasy, Molly. And to me again, I'm, I'm perceiving these things as, as communal, as yeah. like friendship stuff. And again, I'm still really heavily involved in music. So like it goes hand in hand music scene. And this forethought for me, or this foresight always worked to my advantage. It was like with cocaine, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm spending way too much money that I don't have. And it's not even really that fun. Mm. It's just like the fact that like you're on cocaine and you can tell people, yeah, I went to the bar on cocaine or like, yeah, I went to the grocery store on cocaine. It's really not that cool. It's just like, you just get to say that at the end of the sentence. like, I don't really want to do this anymore. It's a waste of money. And so like I stopped or or like, I don't want to do LSD anymore. I had a really amazing trip. Any trip that I ever am going to have is just going to be chasing this one. I'm done. And I would never touch it again. Same thing with ecstasy. I had a really bad trip. I was like, I never want to feel like that again. I'm done. So I I was finished and I always had the ability to like do that. And then what happened was I wanted to fit in. So the minute that a a guy came to me and introduced me to um, opiates, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll try it. I never turned my nose up to, to something. I'll try it. And so I tried it. And the difference was is that I couldn't stop this one. And this one for the first time ever, that hole that I was talking about, I stopped noticing it completely. It wasn't just like, Oh, it's there. I don't want to feel that it was, Oh, I, I, I don't care anymore. And, and that was a very, 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 very addictive feeling. For me, was like because my whole life it was trying to put stuff in to this void and I would felt like I would fill it up like Tetris almost. Mm-hmm. And then it's like you get enough stuff in there and then the whole slate, slate gets wiped clean. For the first time ever, it was like somebody just hit pause on the game and I was able to breathe. And all those feelings of wanting to be accepted socially, of wanting to impress my parents, of wanting to be the guy who everybody looked at to be that poster child, like that unnecessary pressure that I put on myself, it fled. And that was, that was the addictive feeling for me. It was just the, the feeling for the first time ever to, to be okay to not give a crap
0: about what other people thought. I don't think I've ever heard addiction described that way as what you were addicted to was that aspect. That, that's, mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. Mm. And, and,
1: and, and if you go and you listen to – so I, I, um, when I was talking to you, I've told you. I've, like, I've spoken to th- literally thousands of people who have gone through this. I've helped them navigate the initial stages and nine times out of 10, I'm dealing with people, um, less now, but in the very beginning stages about for the first three years of while I was doing this, I was dealing with people that were literally in the throes of addiction. Like they were at the point, 10 steps in front of when I got help, they were like underneath the bridge in jails, like parents kicking them out, out onto the streets. Like those were the people that I was talking to. And I was like, why do you keep doing it? Like how would you describe not a lot of the times recently um, opiate addiction why do you keep doing it like can you just explain to me why and a lot of people identify the high of opiates as like a hug like I've heard that a lot of times it feels like a hug or like it just feels like warmth all over my body or like it just feel it just makes me um it feels like my best friend like i've I've heard these things over and over and over and over and over again and it provides some sort of comfort I identify it as like it it just paused the game it slowed my brain down it like made me stop caring about certain things and that's my logical brain working but when i really get down to it it attaches to a point in the brain that's responsible for connection so all those things that are, that you're you're striving for like that our society demands of people Right? I mean, social media, you have to have this look or whatever. And if you don't have that look, then like you don't feel like, that, like you can even go outside or like be around people. All these false conceptions about how we're supposed to be that inhibit us from truly connecting with one another because we're putting off this persona of how we think that we're supposed this caricature of what real life is. And so no one's ever really getting the full, genuine, authentic version of any one other person. And so, when you take this this opiate, you take this drug, and all of a sudden, it, it doesn't care like how many friends, likes, or whatever it is that you have. It's just like, yeah, you're like like let's let's lose three hours together, and that's a rewarding feeling. Mm-hmm. And and the dopamine pleasure center of the brain responds. So I think that there was a study that was done, and it was like the, like jumping out of an airplane registers as like a one thousand, whereas like taking um, opiates registers as like one million in terms of like your dopamine release. And so when you think about that, it's like, that's why people are doing this over and over and over again, it's because it's, it's better than an orgasm. It's, 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 it's sickening to, to me to realize that like, that's where I was. And then like, and it took more and more and more for me to, to not, what's really, really, really bad about this drug is that like, that's how it feels in the beginning. Yeah. And that feeling leaves pretty quickly and you're always chasing that feeling again and again and again and then eventually what happens is that you're operating at a deficit. So whereas before, if this is the line, you're operating like this, what happens is, is that you're down here and then you have to use just to get back up to where you were feeling like crap. Yeah. So like, you, you, you feel amazing, and then you come back down and then you're feeling like crap and then it's like now I have to use just to feel like how I used to feel whenever I felt like crap to maintain the status quo. Mm. And so it's it's really 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 intriguing. The more and more and more I learn about it, the more I believe that it, it's extremely 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 preventable. If we know what we're looking for on the front side.
0: Right. Hmm. You know, you mentioned um, kind of seeing a future of mm-hmm. of being suicidal, feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. Was that ever a present experience, or was it always something that seemed like it was a potential future for you?
1: So again, um I've only shared this like maybe like one other time, um, maybe twice and it, when it wasn't in a therapeutic setting, uh, and I didn't feel like the unless I felt like it would be really candid for the conversation or really appropriate for the conversation. so when I was eleven um, again, West Virginia school systems I don't really fit inside of the box of things um I got removed from my public schooling system because i didn't fit in the box like they didn't know how to handle me they they said that i had ADD, adhd when to put me on medications in reality i'm testing off the charts um, and gifted in certain areas of school so um they, they put me into a private schooling system and this private schooling system again it's still west virginia the only thing the only options that we have are like catholic schools so i go into a catholic schooling system and i'm challenging things like Why does the Bible have quotation marks? Quotation marks imply a direct conversation. And the earliest account of Jesus is 60 years after his death. There shouldn't be quotation marks. And then getting kicked out of religion class. So um, didn't really like help my situation out at all. Because if you're in a Catholic school and you're not in religion class, like what's the point of you being in a Catholic school? So what do we do with this guy? Meaning that like I could have been kicked out of school again. And so I'm sitting there and my dad tells me that if that's the case and I wind up getting kicked out of school again, then like I'm getting shipped off to military school, which to me as a kid registers as my family's better off without me. I'm a burden. Um, and in reality, I just, I'm just curious. I just want answers. And like, um, as a kid, like, is there a certain degree of it that's done as a smart aleck? Like, yeah, because I'm smart and I think I'm smarter than adults. And that, that's part of being a 12 year old. <laughs> like um and it's the it's the adult' responsibility to not let the 12 year old get underneath of their skin and like and tutor and disciple and like and help him understand like this is where you are, this is where I am, and let me teach you why like I can help you out through this like the Bible quotation marks because of x, y, and z like educate me don't punish me um and that's how I believe it would have been handled in other more modern schooling systems. I think West Virginia is a little bit further behind than other states are um So I've always been told by people on the West coast and people like within DC and New York, like you kind of got the short end of the stick by being in West Virginia um, as far as what that's concerned. But when he told me that and that registered in my brain as um, my 12 year old brain is that like my, my family doesn't want me. um, My dad doesn't want me. I'm a burden. I'm a screw up. I can't do anything right. I shouldn't even ask questions. Like my I'm thinking wrong and the way that I am is wrong. Uh, you can imagine how much pressure that puts on the 12 year old kid. He's already like, it's like the emotional floodgates have already just been released anyway. So um, my response to that was to at that age, I thought that my family would be better off without me. And so after that whole situation happened, I took a belt and I wrapped it around my neck and I attempted to um, strangulate myself. And my dad actually walked up on it and he came up and he saw me do it and not pleased at all uh harsh words were said and then at the end of it it was like think about what this would do to your mother think about what this would do to me um he's like you know that that would be super selfish of you and we never spoke about it again and so like it was just like just think about that and so like when i say that like you know that's that's normal behavior for a 12 year old it's it's hard to say i don't know whatever i only know my experience I don't know what every 12 year old goes through. I don't know if those are normal signs for them. Um, what I do know is is that at that point in time, that feeling that my family would be better off without me, um, the, the idea of like not being around them um was enough for me to think that like that was a good idea. And and is that normal or unnormal? I don't know. Did I have thoughts or ideations of doing it um post that? Yeah, I had like m- like maybe like one other time in like the throes of my addiction where I, where I thought like that it would be a really good idea or like it would be easier to take that route. Um, have I thought about it since I got sober? No, I would say no. Um, I would say that I think that like it's, it's easy to get down at times with things. And I think that like, it's easy to get um, to allow life circumstances to really compound within you. But that's the purpose behind building up like support networks and like, in people to talk about it, to vent this stuff, to not carry, the, the burdens or the shoulder of the world on, on, on your back. Right. And so in my opinion, like, do I feel like that I, I've, I've always struggled with um, underlying depression along with it. I would say like, um, no, because the depression itself, I think to me would be that constant reminder of that hole, right? Like that, that hole's always been there. It's always going to be there. And I don't believe that today. Like, so I, I wouldn't say that, that I've always struggled with it, I would say that, um, for me, depression has been something that, um, coupled along with like my circumstances at that time. And like, maybe if some circumstances hadn't been present, that those acts would not have been there either. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard for me to like sit back now, you know, almost 20 years later and like, look at this and say, you know, if, uh you know maybe if my dad would have been a little bit more um like caring in the way that he approached that conversation with me and just like we you know we're running out of options here to give you the education you deserve but at the same time like um like there's no other schools available like you know there may have been a more appropriate way to have that conversation for a 12 year old um or maybe if they would have gotten behind me and been like yeah we're going to fight back on this like they they were wrong like there maybe there's other ways that like things could have gone but what i'll say is is that I, I We can't play the what if game, you know, and like ultimately, what happened was is that that some accumulation of all that pain and hurt was taken away the minute that I took opiates right. and then what happened when I decided to get clean was that I had to face all that again, and I had to walk through all that stuff again, except this time I'm not doing it as the golden child, I'm doing it as a self admitted addict. Mm-hmm. So I've lost all credibility. Everything I ever did achieve is now wiped underneath the table. And it's like, now we're starting back from square zero. Like you are addict quote unquote, like, and like, even though I wasn't that caricature, I developed all the attributes of that avatar just because I admitted to it. Right. And it's stigmatized.
0: Did your family have any idea that you were an addict before you came out and told them? I think it depends on who you ask and when you ask them, <laughs> if I'm being
1: honest. Um, I think if you ask my mom, she would say, uh, she would say, yeah, like there were signs. I think if you ask my dad, he would say, um, that there were signs, but I, I think, I think if you would have asked them in the moment, like, Hey, is your, yeah. how's your son doing? They would have been like, Oh, he's doing great. He's in law school. He's this, he's that, he's that, he's that, he's that, he's that, he's that. hindsight's always 2020. 20, and, I, you know, and the thing is, is that like, um, I was that kid that grew up and would tell on himself because I was told that, um, you know, you get in a lot less trouble if you tell the truth. It's like, I remember throwing a rock and hitting a windshield of a car, just park car. And I was just throwing rocks. I don't know why I was, I was stupid. I was like eight and thought it was fun. And my friends were like, don't tell anyone. No one will ever know it's you. I was like, I have to go tell. Like, I have to. It's like, my conscience would always eat at me. So like, I went and I told my parents about it. Um, again, another time I like threw a car into reverse while we were waiting for my mom to get out of someplace. And like, We could have very easily just been like, yeah, you forgot to put the parking brake on. But I was like, no, I put the car in reverse and I took the parking brake off. And so like I always would tell the situation. I was known as that guy, like the honest person. And so I think for them, the biggest sign that they saw was that like I stopped communicating and like that was like when they're looking back on it they're saying like oh he's calling less oh he's not admitting to doing to doing as much like screwed up stuff is like cuz we're humans right like we're going to make mistakes we're going to do things and i was always the guy that would be try to get in front of it mm-hmm. like Hey Mom Dad, um remember how you guys came up and I said I needed um extra money for for to get gas for my car yeah well i didn't use it for that. I actually used it to buy alcohol at this one thing like that was the kind of person that I was is that I would say those things because it would eat at me. My conscience was just so strong, and then I stopped doing that as much over the last like two or three years, and so like I think when they're looking on it in reverse like they can see that um but if you would have asked my best friend who lived right beside me, like we were, he played drums, I played guitar and you would have said, Hey, is there anything going on with Jake? He would have been like, yeah, like it's, it's bad. He like won't answer my calls. He won't talk to me. We lived right next door to each other. And so I think if you would have asked him, he would have known, he's probably the only person that knew me well enough to know. And like saw me enough to know that like he saw the progression of it the whole way
0: through. So I know that it was in your second year of law school, you decided Mm -hmm. to give up substances that weren't serving you. Yeah. 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 What,
1: what prompted that decision? It wasn't anything anybody could have said to me. It was, it was really interesting. It was like my, my friend Nick always knew that I, so that's the guy who played drums and I play guitar. Um, And again, we were in music together. We were both in law school together. Um, He knew me as a guy who would like just try stuff and experiment. And like, Mm -hmm. it's like, he would never say anything to me because I, again, I always had that foresight. Oh, I'm not going to mess with this stuff anymore. It's not serving me. And I always progressed along the, the, the train light or the train track of life. So like, he didn't know if it was appropriate to say anything to me or not. Right. He's like, is that just Jake being Jake? And like, you know, so he didn't know if it was appropriate. So he never did. Um, but what happened was, is that I was sitting inside of this class. It was a cyber law course, completely a mistake that I was in there. My mom is, is a cybersecurity expert. I was like, oh, this is going to be like prosecuting cyber criminals. This would be awesome. And so like, I didn't read the class description. I just like saw the name and got really excited and marked it down thinking I might get in and I might not. And um, when I was sitting in it during the first day, they're like, so this is online copyright. And I'm like, yeah, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> but I was so loaded at the time um, that I forgot to to remove it from my class schedule. So I was stuck in it. Hmm. And you know, again, school came pretty easily to me. So it's not like I had to study or had to read or anything. Like I would literally read the casework, like 60 page cases while I was sitting in class reading through it. And I knew how to speed read and scan through it enough to find the information that if I got caught on that, I would, that I would be good to answer. And a lot of times I would even, you know, I would raise my hand so then I wouldn't get caught on for the next case if I knew the answer. <laughs> so, um, that was the kind of student that I was like, not, not super proactive, but always performing, performing well. And so this teacher one day just out of the blue, about two months into um, my schooling wrote on a sticky note, I need to talk to you after class, left it on my desk, went about teaching the rest of her class. And then, like, she turned around and, like, looked at me. Like, we made eye contact, and I kind of gave her, like, thumbs up. Like, okay, like, I don't really know you. You don't really know me. I don't know why, we, what we would have to talk about. And so I walked up to her after the end of class, and she pulls out this sheet of paper. is kind of like this, like, legal pad. still right on legal pads. And she pulled it out and was like, tardy, 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 tardy. one time. Tardy, 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 tardy. She's like, Jake, it's ridiculous. I was like, what, what is, and she goes, the fact that you're not going to be able to take this exam because you can't show up on time and you have one of the highest averages in the class. She's like, and you're going to fail this class because you can't sit down on time. She's like, what's going on? Are you okay? And there was something about those three words, like, are you okay? I don't know if it was the way that she asked, if it was the fact that she like made the time for me, if it was the fact that like, I had just prayed the night before saying like, you know, if there's any way that I can get through this, I'll, I'll take it. Like, just show me what to do. I, I don't, is it all three of those things? I don't know. But in that moment, I, again, foresight, I saw two very clear paths and was like, I can take this, this hand that's being offered to me and I can just admit it for the first time. Like, I'm struggling and I need help and I've tried getting off this stuff on my own and I can't and it's, and it's killing me. What do I do? Or I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, complete law school, seize, get degrees. I'll be fine. Um, And then just, and I'll deal with this again later. I'll figure it out at another point in my life. And it was what felt like a lifetime. I, I really felt like I like lived out the next like four years of my life. If I went these two directions and it felt like, forever but it was probably in reality like maybe five seconds and I like looked down thought and looked back up and I was like I, I, I need help I'm like really addicted and, and like and I don't know what to do and then she's like addicted to what and I was like I'm, I'm addicted to opiates and I don't know how to get off of them and she's like okay and then I proceeded to tell her everything. She didn't ask me any other questions. I just vented it all out. As you can tell I can talk for a while. So, um I told her everything and for the first time in a very 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 long time, I felt this weight come off my chest. Like it was it was insane. Um I felt liberated and it was like okay, somebody else knows now. Like somebody knows what's happening and I can show myself to somebody and she she didn't meet me with aggression, she didn't judge me. Um she was like I could tell she was listening, thinking, how can I help this guy who just told me all this stuff that honestly, I don't even know if she was prepared to hear, but I could see her wheels turning and she's like, okay, let's go talk to the Dean. And I'm like, oh crap, now I got to tell another person. And so I went into her office and I told, and I told the Dean the same exact thing. I told her the same story. I told her everything. And again, another huge weight came off my chest and I was like, and I felt better. And so, like, they set up this plan where I could, like, complete law school in the next seven years if I needed to. And, like, here's what we're going to do. And here's how we're going to set it up. And I, I was withdra- withdrawn. No penalties. Nothing. Like, you're good to go. Um, go figure this thing out. Call us whenever you're ready. Seven-year hold. Like, we took care of all of it within a day. And as I was leaving the office, I was like, so what do I do now? And they're like, well, now you got to tell your parents. And then, like, it was like my heart sank. Cause like, here's these people that I spent my entire life trying to build up this persona of who I was. Like, if we're talking about pseudo connection, like I have the deepest, at that point in my life, the deepest pseudo connection with them, like who I am portraying myself to be versus what's really going on with me are two very different things. And so I remember my mom came up and it was two days later, three days later, and I sat her down I grabbed her by the knees and I looked at her. Um, this is after like some sort of fight that happened between um, my sister and I, and I was like, mom the reason why this is happening is because of this. And I like told her everything. I was like, I'm heavily addicted to opiates. I don't know how to get off. I like really need help. um, And I don't know what to do. She's like, well, what about school? And I was like, I'm already withdrawn. Like they have already, like that's already done. The plan looks like this. I like, but I don't know where to start. I don't know the next step. And they told me to tell you. So that's where I am. Within 24 hours I was back home Um, I already cleaned out an apartment back home and I tried doing an at home, um, detox didn't work because I'm somebody who was really addicted. Um, and so like within 48 hours of me being back home, my parents quickly realized once everything was known, they're like, yeah, we, we can't help you. Like, we're not professionals in this. We don't know what we're doing. We wish we could, like, if we could, we would, but, but we can't. And so we need to turn this over to professionals. And so we sought the world's best professional, Google, and typed in um, drug treatment rehab, I'm pretty sure. And the first number that popped up, um, we called. And I wound up in um, Nashville, Tennessee, or not Nashville. Hang on. Yeah, Nashville. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's been so long. Um, I wound up I wound up in Nashville, Tennessee, and while I was there... Um, the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the people around me, again, the avatars of what addiction looks like, you know, this guy beats his wife. This person has been in and out of treatment, um, you know, six to seven, eight, nine times. This person's died and come back to life three or four times. I'm not these guys. Like I'm not homeless. I'm not, I'm not shooting, shooting up with needles like that. Like that's not me. Do I even really have that bad of a problem? Like I was just in law school just a week ago. Like, is this really that bad? And so I had already convinced myself that I'm different from everybody else which is the same thing. I convinced myself to get myself sick, right? Is it like, I'm different from everybody else. And I need to like connect with people and I can, because I'm different and I need to connect. I need these drugs in order to help me do it. I just convinced myself of the same thing within, within a healing environment. It also didn't help that in this healing environment. They told me to look left, look right. One of you is going to die. The other one's going to be in jail and you'll be lucky enough to be sitting in that seat again. Like two people out of this group of 40 are going to get it right. It's like, that didn't help my situation either. Cause I was like, well, I'm probably definitely not one of those two. I was like, so I guess I'm going to be sitting back here again. <laughs> so um, hopefully. And so I, 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 again, I was sitting in front of my um, like my therapist, like believing that I knew more than what they did, um, challenging them because it's what I did. And so um, I asked him, I was like, you know, are you sober? And he goes, no, I was like, well, then how the hell are you ever going to teach me how to get sober one day? If you've never done it ever, I'm like, how are you going to teach me how to do it? And he's like, Jake, I'm a therapist. It's what I've gone to school to do. And I was like, okay. I like my dad went to school and is a chemistry major. I was like, but he works on teeth. It doesn't, doesn't mean that he's he can go around and just be, you know, he can't like formulate chemical compounds. I was like, just because he went to school for it doesn't mean that's what he does. I was like Just because you went to school to help te- teach people how to be sober doesn't mean you know how to do it. And then, um, he didn't like that. Mm. And so, um, I I wound up just combating him. Like what was meant to be a healing place for me wound up becoming a place where I convinced myself, like I was different, that I was going to use again, that I was going to do it smarter this time. Um, because like now I could do it and I can control it. And like, that's what I convinced myself of, which the more people that you speak to in addiction, the more that you'll hear that's very common theme is that like we convince ourselves that that it's going to be different this time. Um, Insanity. And so I went home and within less than 14 days, I was using again.
0: So uh, I was going to ask, and you've obviously answered it, but was, was getting sober as easy as making that decision? And obviously not. So <laughs>
1: Well, it's, it's, so, it's so weird, right? It's like I tell people that that conversation was the minute that I decided that I was addicted. It's like right. it's the minute that I was ready to admit that, like, I have a problem. But I wasn't ready to start working on the problem. I, it started the journey for me. That's where my um, that's where my recovery journey started. It's not where it really be. It's not really where I made the decision to to begin recovering. It's like that's just where it
0: started. That so was what, the
1: acknowledgement of the issue.
0: So, what did it take for you to decide? I want to heal. I want to feel better. I don't <laughs> want to be this guy I've been.
1: Yeah. So, um, I was using roughly a thousand dollars a day um, blowing through it. I, I I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where like, um, working full time, having merit-based scholarships, like doing, doing what it was that I was doing. Um, student body vice president, I had, um, income, right. And I had savings. I've been working since I was, again, like my parents really instilled work ethic. I blew through everything. Um, I didn't have a penny to my name by the time that I was done. Um, and I was using roughly about a thousand dollars a day. And I remember on the 10th day I'm pulling out a thousand dollars um, I live in a small town. I was like, maybe I should go to a different bank. Like I see the same people over and over and over again. Like it's probably getting suspicious. I'm going to the same place again to get out another thousand dollars. Um, maybe I should go to a different branch. And then my drug dealer hit me up and he was less, less than a block away. And I was like, yeah, no, screw it. I'm going to go here. So I went there and, um, thank God for a small town. Um, because the woman and the teller who, um, gave me the money, like technically shouldn't be saying any of my information but um called my mother and was like hey i don't know what's going on with jake but there's something going on um this is the 10th day in a row he's been to the bank hmm. didn't didn't disclose any information in terms of how much i was using or how much i was taking out just like hey, it's kind of fishy he's been to the bank 10 times in a row and so um i got my my what it was that i had where I, I went to go get which at that time was 30 um 30 oxys 30 30 milligram per cassette. and I got the phone call from my mom, come home. And I was like, yep, the jig is up, put it back into my pocket, ignored it for the next two hours. And when I got back home, um, my dad was there and I could see on his face. Um, I could see on my mother's face that there was like, like that was it. Like it's like, like it was finished. And, um, there was no turning back at that point. There was no like, Oh, maybe if I just did it this way, or maybe if I did it, that was no, it was like, dude, you need to go to treatment and like take it seriously or you can go be homeless. Like, like those are your only two options. And, um, and I knew, and I could just feel it. I just knew that it was different. And I, I'm not going to say that at that point I was ready to, to get healthy. What happened was I was like, okay, I don't want to be homeless. It's January in West Virginia. And so like, no, uh, I'll go to treatment and I'll like collect my thoughts and I'll think of another plan. So I, I like I went to treatment and I had thirty pills in my pocket, and the moment that I decided like man I really have a problem I need to figure this out was I was in an airplane bathroom, um, smoking pills, off a foil, waving away from um, a smoke detector in the middle of an airplane bathroom and thinking if a federal U.S. air marshal were to walk in on me right this second, I'm going to jail for life because I'm not in any one state, I'm in am I'm in, a, I'm in a federal airspace. So this is a federal crime that I, I, I am holding a prescription that is not mine. For every pill I have, it's seven years. I was like, like I'm, I'm looking at some serious time if I get caught right now. And I thought, oh, well, and I did it anyway. And I was like, and then I remember going back to my seat thinking like, how sick am I? Like, I really need to take this seriously. And so I finished all the stuff that I had and I went back into that treatment center the second time, so messed up they were like, you were using 30 a day. I was like, yes. And I used 30 of them within six hours within plane rides. Mm. And they, I was so messed up. I went to my clean date should be the 12th, but I didn't wake up until the 14th. So I consider my clean date the 14th of January. Um, and when I came out, uh, I was like, I don't care what it takes. Like if I need to pat my head with one hand rub my stomach with the other hop on one foot for an hour and you tell me to do it for an hour, I'm going to do it for two. Cause like, I'm I'm just tired of feeling like crap about who I am. I don't know what this process is going to look like, where it's going to lead, what's going to happen, but I'm going to do whatever it is that anybody suggests at this point. And somebody suggested a five month program. They're like, you need at least six months. That will really help. And so I went to, I was like, okay. So I I told my mom, I was like, they say I need a five month program. She went and she did research and she found one of the hardest ones in the nation. And I was like, Oh man, I really don't want to do this. And because I didn't want to do it, that's why I chose to do it because I was like, that's probably my addiction trying to talk me out of it. I was like, so I should do everything, the exact opposite of everything I want to do, I should do the opposite. And so like that, that's what I need to do. And so I went to a five month program and while I was going through that, it was, it was a lot of healing, a lot of going through those instances, like what we had talked about earlier, realizing like, what's my part in that, right? Like, so not just like, you know, screw my dad because he didn't care about me trying to take my own life at, At at, at 12 years old, it's like it's like no, it's like I I I have my own part to play in in that. Like you know, um, like what did that look like? Why didn't I bring it up to him later? Why didn't I talk to him later? Um, You know, why don't I talk to him now about it if these things affect me? Like so, understanding like what true empowerment meant, what true what being a a man actually meant um, beyond like the facade that I was trying to portray, like the guy who can make an income and be a provider. Like what is what is a real man? Somebody who's like not afraid to do the hard thing, to do the to do the right thing, and like sometimes the right thing is going to tick some people off, mm-hmm. and like and that's okay, and like but like it's not up to me to decide how they feel about what my perception of the right thing is. It's my job to cleanse myself each and every day of what I believe I need to be doing, and so when I finally understood those principles, I, I don't think everybody gets it at six months. But again, like foresight, right? If I give myself all of this, if I just do it all to the best of my ability, I'm going to reap all of the reward. And so like I, I gave myself entirely to that program. It was noticed by um, like by the owner. He asked me what I got out of the program. I told him about how each and every modality affected me. And like in this specific way, he's like, I want to build an admissions department. You speak about the program so profoundly, would you want to help? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I plan on going back to law school, but sure. And then five years later, um, you know, we move offices. I wind up, you know, marrying the girl across across the street, literally the girl next door. Um, we have a beautiful child and like, and I'm still here and we're dealing with coronavirus. And so that's that's kind of like how the progression went. And, I, and I'm not going to say that it was easy. I just decided I was done. You know, it was a mental decision for me. And it was like, it, it could have gotten a lot worse. Like it really could have. But that beauty of foresight, I think I've always used to, really just decide like I'm I'm not my bottom is whenever I decide to stop digging. Like that's a cliche, but it's so true. You know, I could have that day that my parents gave me that ultimatum, I could have walked out the door. And a lot of people that are in that situation do. Like I got the drugs in my pocket. I still have a couple of dollars in my bank account. I'll figure it out. I'll flip these, I'll do this, I'll do that, and like and I'll make it happen. Yeah. Um but I was like, you know like why why more chaos? Like not one more day. And when I made that decision, that really became a motto for me. Like moving forward, it was like not even one more. Like just, just don't eliminate it in your head as an option. Like not even one more relapse. I'm not going to do it. Can't do it to myself because I, I I have to like go through all that all over again. Yeah, no way. Like I I mean, I'm used to hard work, but I'm also like a product of like path of least resistance. I'm not going to go that direction. I'm only moving forward. (laughs) And so um, I've been like extremely blessed and like, and I'm really glad that you asked the questions that you asked. It got me on the tangents that they got me on, because it really reminds me nine times out of 10, I'm helping people through their own journeys, like getting, getting to a point where they can be here. Right. Um, it's nice to sometimes like go back and like, think about how bad did it get prior to, um, even picking something up and like what may have been, been the preceding factor, but, um, In my, in my mind, like, even when I do this, it it doesn't shake my confidence in knowing that like, had the people in my life been as confident as what that teacher had been to have that conversation with me um, at a much younger age, had I been as, had I been as like self-aware as what I am now to like understand what my role in some of these things were and like, and to have the courage and the freedom to talk about them before they boiled over in me and I just had to like eliminate them as, as a factor that I was thinking about. Um, it could have been prevented. And like, and yeah, my story wasn't that bad, but like, and like in the beautiful amazing collateral beauty of like a child and like a marriage came out of it. Um, and like thousands of lives that I've helped and affected. Um, but it could have been prevented. Yeah. And like, and, and that's the thing that, that really, that really like remanates within me is that, um, I have that guy who introduced him to me in the very beginning. Um, he was 18 years old. He, I kind of was trying to help mentor him through Model UN and like student government. And six months post me getting admitting that I needed help, he asked um, how, how I was doing. And I just graduated this program. And I was like, yeah, man, I was like, I'm doing great. Like I, I'm out here. You should come out here too. And his response to me was that no, I'm okay. And I was like, all right, yeah, sure. You know, I'm not going to, you can't force people. The very AA thing, right? Like like they got to want it. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm not going to force the situation. Uh, Two weeks later on Thanksgiving, I get a text from his mom. That's like he, Paul just passed away. So on Thanksgiving day by himself alone in a dorm room, passed away from a fatal heroin overdose. And like, this was a guy who I was spending almost every single day with. So, like, not, not only could it have been me, but, like, again, um, had I maybe pressed the issue a little bit more, had I had the confidence to do um, what that teacher did for me, maybe, maybe it would have prevented it a little bit longer, maybe he would have gotten the help, I don't know, I don't play the what-if game, but what I do know is that when I speak to people, like the the person when I whether I'm giving like large speeches like like I've done at, at college campuses, whether I'm speaking to a mother over the phone, whether I'm speaking to the the person who's currently struggling, I envision him, and like and he's the reason why, um I, I I do what it is I really believe he's the reason why I do what it is that I do because like, I was gifted a second chance, right? And I and I believe that my story didn't get as bad as what it could have, so then I can show people like if I decided I need to get help and this is where I was at and like, and then this is where you're at, not to compare, but like, you know, it just doesn't serve us. Like these drugs just don't serve us. And like, and there's, there's children out there that, that are idolizing these, these people, like, you know, and I'm not going to throw, throw people's names out there, but these, these celebrities who literally have, have made careers and off of like drug culture. And it's, and it's always been a thing, but like, they're dying younger. Like it's not the 27 club anymore. It's like the 18 club, the 19 club, like these, these, these poor celebrities that are just like so lost up and have no clue who they are. And their only identification of, of themselves is through these substances that they sing and they rap and they do all these things about and they're dying. And these kids are idolizing them. And we're wondering why overdose, um, like suicide rates, it's all going up between the ages of 18 to 35. And it's like, well, we'll look at the people that we're idolizing.
0: Yeah, I I find time and time again that silence kills. Mm -hmm. And be it the silence of parents not wanting to feel the pain, address the pain, the concern they have for their children, Mm -hmm. be it ourselves not wanting Mm -hmm. to feel that hole, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But so that's why I'm really, I'm so glad that you are speaking, not only today, but using your story to connect to other people, to help them, to to go to the path of most resistance yeah at times and yeah well i mean you you
1: you, yeah you have to right it's like you you got to build the muscle in order in order to run the marathon you know what i mean it's like you 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 have to know that you're capable of it yeah right i I have to be able to look back on on the situations that i've gone through and know that like not only i'm not a victim like right i'm not a survivor like i'm i'm a freaking warrior (laughs) <laughs> for what I've gone through. Um, and like, and there's stuff that that's in my history that like for the purposes of, of like just the fact that like people change and things change and circumstances change, like it doesn't matter. Like what my exact traumas are, what my exact past is, it's irrelevant, right? Like m- my situation is very different today with my family than what it was growing up. Um, and that's all that really matters to me. And that's all that really matters, um, to my, to my daughter, their future granddaughter is that like, people change situations change and, and I can recognize that. And I don't hold any resentment or ill will against anybody for anything that happened to me while I was growing up. Um, it doesn't define me, but the thing is, is that like, did it affect me? Of course it did. And the thing is, is that the more that I talk to people, more that every single person I've spoken to has an instance where they have either been, um, a child of mental, physical, um, sexual abuse. Like it, it sucks to say that like that that that's the case, and like maybe somewhere out there there's somebody where where that that isn't the case, but for the people that are struggling with this affliction, like that's what I've seen more times than not yeah. that everybody has a story to tell, and like and there's a lot of instances of it it's just those of us that are willing to communicate it right, and sometimes we don't because like again, people change like you know well, he did that, but it stopped at this age, and he's never done anything like that since, and so you 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 protect through silence, like you said, right um and sometimes like, like that can be beneficial and sometimes it can, it's up to you and your own personal um, journey as to like how much of that you're gonna allow to affect you on a daily basis or not. Um, but my, my thing with it is, is that like I, I look at how much of this could be prevented if we just knew how to communicate with one another, yeah. right? Like um, if the father who gets mad and angry and drinks, it takes it out through, through, through physicality what what if he just knew how to communicate that anger in a different way? Like what, what child would then not be brutally beaten? What wife would then not be brutally beaten? If like, if the father knew how to, how to, how to exclaim his, his lack of self-confidence to his wife and say that, like, you know, I'm not feeling confident in, in me and who I am and like, and that's what's leading to me to acting weird with you. And then like, that's, what's leading to our lack of physical intimacy and like, and they can catch it before is ever, you know, a break of trust between each other. How many marriages would be saved? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and, and like, we have a responsibility to communicate. And like when, I, I mean, I love the title of, of your show. And it's like, and it's like, yeah, like not only do we feel, but like we have a responsibility to communicate how we feel oh, yeah. because there's a whole new generation of, of, of children that are coming up that, that are, are I mean, think about what's going on right now. How are the fathers in the households communicating to their children about what's happening? Are they communicating and translating panic, fear, or strength and resilience and understanding? Like, yeah, it's scary out there, man. It's crazy, but like, you know, if we believe in X, whatever it is that the family believes in, we're going to get through it. Why? Because we're a family. Because that's what we've always done. That's what the history of the nation's always been. Like, are they communicating with their kids? Or are they let? Are the kids seeing the panic and the fear through them? Right. And it's like. I truly believe that a lot of these afflictions that we're seeing becoming ever more prominent in our society can be prevented through effective communication and connection. I believe it. I, I, I know it for myself to be a factor and to be true um, because I believe that the only reason why I haven't slipped back in, where I've seen thousands of other people slip back into the throes of addiction, is because I have connections and I know how to communicate. I know how to communicate what's going on with me and, and I will never allow a feeling or an emotion or an instance in my life to ever have more power over me than what I choose to allow it to have anymore, period.
0: Okay. Yeah, the, and I think it's important. and You've mentioned it, but I want to stress it again that stopping to use wasn't the healing. That just gave oh. you the chance to begin the healing of course, and to yeah. show what it was feeling, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's really multiple decisions along the way.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I tell it um, to Patricia all the time. Like I, and I tell this to people who I work with in terms of my coaching, I tell it to people who are getting sober. It's like the removal of the drugs and alcohol is one piece of the equation. And it's probably the smallest piece.
0: Hmm.
1: Like um, any place, I believe any place in America can succeed in getting you off drugs. Right. The real trick is in helping you build up enough self-confidence, self-worth and self-discipline to never pick up again. And that's a place where a lot of people – that's thats where a lot of places fail, is that, is that they're not helping people build enough self-confidence, self-discipline, and, like, self-worth to never want to pick up again. And, like – and that's a hard job, right, because we tear ourselves down and we do all these things. But, again, like, when I feel the worst about myself, as, 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 mu- as much as what it's, like, you know, it's humbling to say, it's, like, I go to my wife and I'm, like – I mean, I just asked her yesterday. I was, like <laughs> – it's embarrassing to admit, but I mean, again, like I'm on this tangent. This is what I'm saying. So I should, I should embody it. Like I went to her and I was like, do you believe in me? Right. Because sometimes like you, you need somebody else to believe in you when you, when you doubt yourself. And sometimes that's enough just to, just to give you that extra push for another day. Right. And like, and she goes, yes, of course I believe in you. She's like, I, I, yes, I believe in you. And like, that gave me enough in that moment to be like, yeah, Yeah, I believe in me too, right? And that moment of self-doubt. But I mean, like, what if I never communicated that to her and I just let that thought fester?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I mean, like, I'm trying to, like, practice what I'm preaching here and, like, in communicating this stuff to people. It's like, you know, I I don't claim to ever be Superman or superhuman or, or like, Mr. Sobriety or anything along those lines. Like, I'm not. I'm fallible. I'm human. But, like, I think that the only thing that makes me somewhat different from what I see, eighty percent of the community doing is the fact that, like, I communicate, and I'm not afraid to. Yeah,
0: often the, the bravest thing we can do is often ask for help. Mm-hmm. Be it in with multiple with ways. addiction right? Or be it, yeah, I kind of doubt myself. Do you believe in me? Right? It's yeah. so, you know, little helps and big helps. It's all, yeah, and it and it all adds up. And it can be just scary to ask for that little one. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. But it all builds up because, I I mean, again, like I saw it over my past life, right? It was like, I can accomplish all these things, but the second that I doubt it, all of it loses its value because none of it it matters in the grand scheme. Like none of it does.
0: So you mentioned your foresight often, and it was Mm -hmm. often looking at at bad paths. So Mm -hmm. I really want to know, what are you looking forward to now? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, what I, what I'm able to do again, like I, I really do believe that I have like, I, and everybody says, Oh yeah, I have the gift of force. No, I'm, I'm telling you, it, it's never failed me. It's really, really, really interesting. Um, and I believe that I figured out not only do I believe, I, I believe I can prove that I figured out ways um, to help other people with this gift. Like, uh, like I almost guaranteed it. I've helped countless families um, being like, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. They don't listen to me. They do that and it happens. And so like um, they do listen to me, they do this and then it happens. So like I think that that works with like just logic, the way that I've been trained to think through like law school and everything else, like logic, understanding like people and being a natural empath um, and putting all these things together in order to create this one gift, which I call foresight. Um, I'm sure that there's another, You know, there's a better name I can come up with for it because it's more than just saying this, but like for for me, I've been able to take this tool and like use it to help people create the the best paths for themselves based on what they want their goals to be. It's like, well, if you really want this, the way that you get here is by doing these things. And like, and it may not make sense in the beginning. Like, for instance, if I have a client and they're like, Oh yeah, I want independence from my parents. Um, I want to be able to do this, 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 and this. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you come from, um, you know, your father is like multimillionaire and like, and you come from like this family and like, do you really know what independence looks like? It's not going to be fun. It's going to look like this. And like, but it's all going to be necessary. And then like, they go through these little tiny wins. And it's like, now they're living inside of a single bedroom um, apartment, but they're not on dad's payroll, but you have independence. And it's like, is that what you want? Or is it that you want to have like your own wealth? And like, you help people define these things. And so, um, and when they do it and they get there and they feel it, and then it's like, okay, now I knew what you meant, right? It's like, I didn't get why you had me read this particular book or why we had this particular conversation until you're looking back on it six months later and you're like, oh, now I see, right? And so for me, the thing that I'm most excited about is like speeding that process up for people. I figure um, in my, in my when I'm doing it the way that I would want to do it, it would be to be able to get people from point A to point B in less than 90 days. Right now, I think it takes me about 90 days to get a true commitment and for people to have a true trust in the process. And then about another 90 days to be able to, to actually affect like massive change to where they're, they're where they really want to be. Mm-hmm. So I always say that it takes about six months. Um, and if you look at treatment, if you look at um, coaching, most programs are set up in that way um, is that it takes about six months. I think if we really wanted to, to, to speed it up, I think I would be most excited to figure out a way to do it all in 90 days. Mm. I think that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah.
1: Sure, um, ha- sure people would appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Change people's lives in 90 days. That'd be awesome. Um, that, that's something that I'm excited about. I believe that like just the more that we do it, the more that we understand about human psychology and interactions, the more I learn about it, the easier that that's going to become. Um, especially like if people take our, our sayings like, you know, be authentic, speak what's really going on, like be wholly honest. If they can do that and they can commit to that, that'd be amazing. And I, I can see that happening. The other thing that I'm doing is, is that um, where I see my life going is I've been really um, trusted with not only a message, but like, um, a story that's like, look, look at the accomplishments that they literally meant nothing to me. And so much so to the fact that like I was harboring this really negative addiction, which means that like in the collegiate atmosphere, if the guy who's student body vice president and doing all of these things is struggling with this, there's a lot of students in between the guy that gets kicked out on freshman year. Cause he can't make grades. And the guy that's in law school in his second year and a student body vice president, there's a lot of people in between that we're missing. Right. That are, that are obviously dealing with this thing. So how do we identify, right. And how do we inspire people to be like that teacher, to be like me and to be open. How do we create those sort of conversations, those authenticities. And like, and I've been giving these speeches across the U um, S of these college campuses. And like, I believe that I'm helping, I used to call it, I help people put the fires out of addiction, like the help them put the fires out of their lives. Now I'm like helping people, uh, stop playing with matches. Like that's exciting to me. And then the other thing um, that I'm doing is I as I really believe that like I've stopped focusing as much, and you know I, I might get ridiculed by some people in, in the in the community. But the thing is, this is like we have to move beyond sobriety. You know, we we have we have to be able to move beyond just not being on drugs. And like, how do we optimize our lives? And so like you and I were talking and you're like, yeah, beyond sobriety. I was like, yeah, of course. And like, and ever since we had that conversation, I've been wrapping my head around what, what what does that actually mean? It's like, well, I've been living it already and I've been helping people come to it already. And it's like, when we, as a community, now I'm saying people who struggle with um, addiction, start telling people, like, just be honest with them and be like, Hey, great news. You're already off drugs. Like the minute that you go into detox, now you're through the detox portion and yeah. you're in residential and it's that 30 day, you're off drugs. Congratulations. Yeah. The part that you thought was the hardest is now finished. Now let's talk about like where the real work starts yeah. the rest of your life.
0: Right. And it's all about creating a life worth living, not mm-hmm. worth coming yourself to. And yeah. That, that, that's the huge thing. It is. Hmm. So what's the best way that people can get in touch with you and find out what you're up to? <laughs>
1: yeah of course, so um, my website is hopeguides.com. dot com People can also contact me through email at jacob.e at hopeguides dot com so that's Jacob period e is an echo at hopeguides.com. dot com um, I used to give out my personal number, but my my wife gets like really frustrated because I started <laughs> getting um, phone calls all the time so um so I don't do that anymore but if there's if there' seriously if anybody wants to talk about anything like you can reach me through that website there's a, a platform to send me messages through there can also, I'm more than happy to answer any email that people send out. Um, they can contact you. You can put them in contact with me. Um, but again, like I, um, I am more than happy to talk to anybody about anything that we've discussed, okay. whether that's figuring out how to find help through more than just um, Google mm-hmm. <laughs> and like finding a trustworthy, finding a trustworthy treatment center. Um, I know the questions to ask. I know the, the things that they should address. Um, I'm more than help, happy to help anybody, whether it's through coaching or, or what have you. Like I, 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 want to help mitigate the the damage that this disease is causing
0: for people. Great, great. So we'll be sure and list that on uh, realmanfield.org. Visit the blog post for this show, for the show, the show notes. We'll have all the ways you can contact J- um, Jacob, learn more, uh, and get some help yourself if if that's awesome. where you are, if that's what you're needing. That'd be great. Uh, Jacob, again from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate you sharing your authenticity, your openness. You're willing to share stories that you don't always share. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, it'll reach the people it can best reach and the impact is there. And again, I, I really appreciate all that you're doing.
1: Of course. Thank you. Seriously. I appreciate being on here and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we made it work. It's awesome. And in the wake of a, uh, of, of national emergency. Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah. So if you're looking for, you know, Safe things to do. You know, look at the the whole back catalog. You got 125 episodes before this one. Um, But but seriously, take care of yourself. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't use this social isolation as an excuse to get more isolated. You know, emotionally, Mm -hmm. mentally, um, connect. uh, Phone, text. You can still have friends, Mm -hmm. even if you can't hug friends. You can still talk to them, get some support, Mm -hmm. ask for help if that's what you need. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't let this be an excuse to just drink or drug more than than you ever have before.
1: Yeah, I I say use this as an opportunity now to start putting in the hard work and doing the research and figuring out ways
0: to help, Yeah, you know? Cool.
1: So yeah, thank you so much.
0: All right, thank you again. And thanks everyone for listening. And wherever you're discovering Real Men Feel, give us some love, a review, a subscribe, a like, a share, whatever works for you. And uh, through whatever you're facing, through what the world is facing, always be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.